Well, as we turn our hearts to God's Word this morning, we're back in Matthew chapter 24, and we're, uh, I was hoping to close out this chapter today. I don't know if we'll be able to do it or not. I think we'll spend one more Sunday in here, but um, as we turn to Matthew 24, it's the text this morning will be uh, verses beginning in verse 36, hopefully to the end of the chapter, but we'll probably get down to about 44 or something like that. Um, and this talks about the unexpected coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the sermon title was The Coming of the Son, No Man Knows the Hour. And that's such an important uh, point to make. And so we're going to be looking at verses 36 through the end of the chapter. And uh, I just want to go ahead and read that for us now, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, also, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if, the wicked, if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We ask that you would apply it to our hearts. Help us understand all that's here before us. We ask your Holy Spirit to enable our minds to comprehend what we're seeing here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want you to look at the setting because it's important that you understand where we're at in the, in the life of our Lord. This is Wednesday of Passion Week. It's the Wednesday right before Christ goes to the cross and is executed. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's spending time with his disciples in a private way. And in verse 3 of chapter 24, they ask him a question. And they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And they sense that it's very near for obvious reasons. They've been spending time with Jesus. They've, they've seen John the Baptist usher him in. They've seen him do all these miracles that, he'll be, that are signs of his messiahship. He denounced the religious leaders in Israel. He cleaned out the temple a couple days before that. All their irreligious activities that were going on, selling and buying of things, they turned it into... Just a, a den of thieves, the Bible says. 
They saw him do that. And then he announced that pretty soon not one of those stones is going to be laid upon another. And he even pronounced the truth that he would come in all glory. And so they thought that, hey, any day now this is going to happen. Luke 19.11 says that they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So they didn't think that, oh, it's going to be thousands of years from now. They didn't understand that. Remember, they didn't know about the church age and the time we're living in now. Even the Old Testament prophets didn't understand that. They kind of overlooked that. God didn't reveal that to them. It was hidden. It was, that's why the New Testament, Paul calls it a mystery. The church is a mystery. But there's two parts to their questions, and I want you to notice them quickly with me. The first, what shall be the sign of your coming? What are the signs? And we've gone through that in verses 4 to 35. And then they ask, when shall these things be? So the tribulation, as we remember, begins when the Antichrist, the seven-year period on earth known as the tribulation, begins when the Antichrist signs a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. That's when it begins. Somewhere along the line, the church is raptured out of here. We don't know where. Christ is coming back for his church. He doesn't come to earth. He comes in the clouds. And and millions of believers will be just gone. Now you think of the chaos that will reign as a result of that. You've all seen the movies. The Left Behind series and other things. You've read books. I mean, it's think about it. People driving cars who are Christians, all of a sudden they're gone. Well, that car is just not going to magically stop. People who are engineers and trains or on the BART, or Amtrak, pilots. I mean, all these things. Those who are Christians at that time, when the Lord comes back for His church, will be immediately gone. They'll be taken back to heaven to be with their Lord and Savior. And somewhere between that rapture of the church and the signing of this treaty, that designates the beginning of this seven-year period. 2,520 days, given by the Jewish calendar, 30 days a month. And so the tribulation begins sometime after the, tri- the rapture of the church, not immediately, whenever that peace treaty is signed. That begins that seven-year mark. Doesn't, we don't know if it's going to be days, or it could, we could be raptured right now, and, and the, the peace treaty could be signed next week, for example. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say that for but we know that that tribulation period begins at the signing of the peace treaty. Now, the Bible speaks of that tribulation period broken up into two segments, two three-and-a-half-year segments. And what breaks it up is when the Antichrist, who signs this peace treaty with Israel because he's actually protecting Israel the first half of the tribulation, and he lets them sacrifice and do everything they want to do in their temple. And all the nations of the world are coming against Israel. And all you have to do is read the newspaper. That doesn't seem very unlikely to happen anytime soon. And so as you look at that, you realize that these things may happen. And so they're going to happen. We just don't know when. But after that signing of the peace treaty, three and a half years in, the Antichrist breaks this treaty with Israel. He goes into the temple. He desecrates it. He props himself up to be their God and says, you either demand or I demand worship from you. And if you don't worship me, I will kill you. And he does just that. He goes on a rampage and slaughters millions and millions and millions of people. 
And so the seven-year period is broken up into two, three-and-a-half-year segments. And the Bible tells us that the second half is when all these signs, all these things start happening. The wheels really fall off the cart. 42 months, 1,260 days, three-and-a-half years. That's when all these signs are going to be happening. And that's what we've been looking at in verses 4 through 35. And so the Lord began to answer this question, what are the signs? But he does point out, as we looked at last week in verse 29, he says the one sign that everyone will understand, it says after the stars fall from the heaven and the the solar system is disrupted, everything just begins to fall apart, it says the power of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And we talked about that last week. What is that sign? It's the Son of Man. It's Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, returning to earth. And it says, everybody will see him. Supernaturally, everybody around the whole globe is going to see him. God created us. He can make that happen, surely. And so that trigger point at the middle of those seven years when that Antichrist, who's won the trust of everybody because he's gotten into power by peaceful means, but once he gets there, he turns on everybody, including Israel, including Christians, including everybody. And he just begins a mass slaughter. Then you have three and a half years of just horrible issues here on earth. So he answers the the what. what, How do we know this? Well, he gives them the signs in verses 4 through 35. And then in, in verse 36, he begins to ask her when. Answer the question when. When specifically will he come? And so in verse 36, we see here very clearly... He says, but concerning that day and hour, what? No one knows. No one knows. In other words, he gives us a general idea of when we can anticipate it. When you start seeing all these things happen in the world, when you see the Antichrist sign that that, that peace treaty, that's the beginning of that seven-year period. And when you see the Antichrist go into the temple and desecrate it, remember, he pointed out in, 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 in previous uh, verses that when that happens, you better run if you're anybody over in that area of Judea because he's just going to slaughter everybody. And God takes a segment of those Jews and believers and he protects them for that remaining three and a half years by divine protection. He doesn't protect all of them. Some of them are going to die. They're going to be martyred for their faith. But in verse 36... He says, no one knows when this is going to happen. No one. The time is unknown. Let me ask you something. When you buy car insurance, or when you buy homeowner's insurance, do you know when that accident is going to happen? You don't. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to know? Think about it. Think if somehow supernaturally you could look at the life of your car and say, you know what, three years into owning your car on this Tuesday at 3 o'clock, somebody's going to hit you. So just make sure you got insurance before that. Other than that, don't worry about it. <laughs> you're going to be fine. Or your health insurance. You know what, you're going to live to the ripe age of 60, and then you're going to have a heart attack. 
But up until then, you're not going to have any medical problems at all. Nothing. You're not even going to scrape your knee. So you can, you can drift and not have medical insurance until age 59, and then you better go get some because when 60 hits, man, the wheels are falling off the cart. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But we don't have that privilege. We just don't. Think of the money you'd save. I mean, I think we're paying 1400 a month with Kaiser, or whatever it is, 1300 It's crazy. Started at three fifty. You know, I mean, I'm thinking, whoa, what happened here? We don't know when those things are going to happen. Well, the same way, we don't know when he will return. We have a general idea because the signs that precede the second coming have been clearly given. We've been looking at those. They're detailed in Matthew 24. They're detailed in in chapter 6 through 18 of Revelation. You can't miss it. As a matter of fact, the generation that's going to be alive when the Lord returns will obviously see those things happening and say, boy, his coming is soon. There will be unmistakable indicators that the collapse of the world as we know it is right on the horizon. But, verse 36 says, the day and hour are not known. Now remember, he's speaking specifically of a day and an hour. In verse 36, in verse 42, same thing. Look at that. What hour? Verse 44, such an hour. Verse 50, day and an hour. 25, 13, over in the chapter 25. You know neither the day nor the hour. He's being very, very, very specific. He's not saying you're not going to have a general idea. You will. Because all these things are going to be happening. But you're not going to know the exact time. Thank you, Harold Camping. I mean, go figure. Where do these people come up with this stuff? Sometimes. You just wonder. You shake your head and wonder. So he's talking about a specific moment. A time period of the second coming. The general time period will be known, but the specific moment will not be. The day and the hour will not be. Now, remember, this goes on for, this tribulation period goes on for seven years. So you have the midpoint, and you're saying, okay, well, if it's three and a half years into it, then there has to be three and a half years after that, and then the Lord returns, right? Right? It says immediately after the tribulation. We just don't know how quick immediately is. As a matter of fact, as we looked in Daniel and in other places, they speak of different time periods. Daniel 12.12 speaks of 335 days. Daniel 12.11 speaks of 1290 days, talking about the great tribulation, those three and a half years. So in Daniel 12, he adds another 30 days on. And then in Daniel... uh, uh, 12, verse 12, he adds another 45, making the total 75 days. After the tribulation is wrapped up, you have about a 75-day period. Then the kingdom begins. So I don't know what's going on in that 75-day period. We don't know. But we do know that the Lord is coming back after that seven-year period at some point right there rather quickly. It says immediately. We don't know what generation... This is going to happen. It could be this generation. We don't know. It could happen at any moment. 
The church could be ushered out of here. We believe in the imminent return for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that has to happen. There's no I that has to be dotted or T that has to be crossed before Jesus can come back for his church. Nothing. So if you show up to church here one Sunday and nobody's here, guess what? Yeah, too bad. Seriously, that's, that's, that would be horrible. What a nightmare, knowing what you've heard and actually having that take place, having all the, the restraining power of God removed from the earth by the Holy Spirit that, that is in the church, literally taken out of here. That's what the Bible says will happen, a catching away. They'll be caught up to be with the Lord. When all this stuff is breaking loose down here, those who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be in heaven in glory with their Savior. Now, a lot of people read this and they say, oh, it must be talking about the rapture here. It's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. The difference is the rapture, Jesus comes back, like I said, into the clouds. He doesn't come to earth. He comes to the clouds. And the church is caught up. At the second coming, he comes down and he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's split in two, it says. And he begins to set everything that's in disarray in order. And not only that, but the church comes back with him. And he sets his kingdom up here on earth for a thousand years. And we rule and reign with him here on earth. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. But here in verse 36, he begins to give us some specifics. He starts by saying, no one knows, no one knows. Who's he talking about? He's talking about men, women. He's talking about humans. He's talking about the natural world there. They don't know. It's not revealed to them. In Matthew 25, 13, it says, you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. God has chosen not to reveal that specific moment. It's just like If your health insurance carrier knew somehow you were going to have a heart attack five years from now, they probably wouldn't tell you. (laughs) Why? Because you may not get insurance until four years out and, you know, they wouldn't make their money. Well, it applies here too. There's a reason behind the wisdom of God in that he gives nobody, nobody, any idea when he's returning, when the son is returning. First of all, think if you were outside of Christ, if you were an evil person, a godless person, you would say, hey, I got time. I'm going to go do whatever I want. I'm going to go have fun and sin and do all sorts of evil before the eyes of the Lord. And then at the last moment, right before I know he's going to come back, I'll just repent and, and then I'll get saved. And also people who are in Christ, think how it would affect your life if somehow supernaturally you knew that Jesus was coming back next Thursday at 3 o'clock in the morning. You don't think that would affect your life as a Christian? It would definitely affect your life. Life would become, in a way, hopeless if you were outside of Christ. And even if you were in Christ, it would be hard to plan anything. It would be hard to have any kind of ongoing relationship. That, that knowledge would drastically change the way you live. And so the Lord has chosen not to give us the knowledge, but to... to Encourage us to live every moment expecting His coming. 
That's how we should live. Every moment expecting the coming of the Lord. Because we never know when he's going to come back. So God has not told us. He's told no man, no one. But not only that, but it says there in verse 36, not only not any human, but nor the angels of heaven. Nor the angels of heaven. God's associates, his supernatural associates that are very tight with him, they they do his bidding, the Bible says. They go out and they're gathering the elect in certain portions. In other portions, they're gathering those who are for judgment. They do the bidding of God. And even the supernatural world doesn't know when the sun will return. The natural world nor the new supernatural world. Nor, it says, the sun. <laughs> We've got to spend a little time here because people get mixed up right here. What do you mean, nor the sun? Okay, I can understand humans not knowing. I can even understand, kind of, if God didn't want the angels to know, for whatever reason, he must have a purpose. But are you telling me that Jesus Christ didn't know? Are you telling me that Jesus Christ, who you've been telling us all this time, is God... And God is all-knowing, can't know something? Interesting dilemma, isn't it? Now, some texts here in the Gospel of Matthew leave out that last portion of the verse 36. So some people say, well, it shouldn't be in there. No, it should be. It says, nor the Son. That should be in there because it's also in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 32, which is a parallel passage. New American Standard includes it. The ESV, I think the NIV. So Jesus says, even the Son of Man doesn't know. I don't know something God is saying. How is it that Jesus Christ cannot know something? How is it that Jesus Christ, who is God, who is omniscient, which means he knows everything, that's what that word means, all-knowing, can't know something or doesn't know something? Well, when you stop and you think about who Jesus Christ was, Jesus Christ was fully God, right? He was very God of, of, of the Trinity. He was the Son of God. He's fully God totally because you can't be part of what God is. You have to either be God or not. See, that's where some people get messed up with the Trinity. They look at the Trinity and they say, oh, well, it's kind of like God the Father, he's more powerful than God the Son. No. Or God the Son's more powerful than the Holy Spirit. No. It doesn't work that way. They're all God. They're all equal. They're all divine. They all are powerful. They have different roles they play, but they're all the same. It's kind of like, and it still breaks down, but it's kind of like saying, hey, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, and I'm a husband. It's the same person, but I have different roles. That doesn't even, you know, you can't really even use that with the Trinity, but it kind of gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. But the Bible says that when Jesus came down to earth, it says that he became a man. 
the incarnation. That's why we celebrate Christmas, right? He voluntarily, listen to this, he voluntarily restricted the use of his godlike abilities, you might say, of his divine attributes. It wasn't, I don't even believe it's that he laid them aside, as some teach. It wasn't that he didn't become, he wasn't God, he was. He was fully divine in every way, and yet he was fully human in every way. Yet without sin, the Bible says. It was that he restricted the use of those divine things. He had them as instruments, but he chose not to pick them up. So he lived without using his omniscience sometimes. And you say, well, what qualified when he used it and when he didn't? The Father. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, he was in submission to his own Father. When the Father told him to use it, he would use it. We know that he was omniscient on on some occasions. John 2 says that he didn't need anybody to tell what was in the heart of a man because he knew what was in the heart of the man. In John 3, when he's answering Nicodemus, he didn't even ask a question. He knew what was in his mind. I mean, he had omniscient abilities. The ability to know before anybody said anything what was in their hearts. But he restricted the use of those things while he was here. The Bible says that he became a son. He took upon him the form of a what? Servant, it says. It means that somehow he, within the Trinity, he submitted himself to all that the Father wanted him to do. And only that. And he submitted himself to what the Father wanted him to say. And he submitted himself to what the Father wanted him to know. Turn over to John, Gospel of John, a couple pages there to your right. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're kind of familiar with this passage, but look at verse 15. Because this is kind of important to understanding how this works with Jesus. It says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. And then look at verse 15, this is interesting. We sing a song that talks about this, friend of God. But look at what he says in verse 15 of John 15. No longer do I call you what? Servants. He's talking to his disciples. I don't call you servants. Why not? He says, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. There's no obligation there. If you're a, ma- if you're a servant in a house, the master doesn't have to come and tell you, oh, I'm going to go do this now. I'm gonna... No, you're there at the, at the will of the, of the master. You, you can do whatever you, you know, he can do whatever he wants. He's the master. So he says, I don't call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Why? For all that I have heard from my father, look at this, I have made known to who? To you. All that I have made, the father has made known to me, I have made known to you. Therefore, we're on a friendship basis. In other words, Jesus' knowledge in his incarnation was qualified by what the Father had revealed to him. 
And the Father revealed to him certain things through Scripture, through the Old Testament, as he studied the Scripture, through experience as he walked in the world. He saw the moving of the power of God in different ways, through direct revelation. But Jesus limited his knowledge to what the Father chose to reveal to him. Amazing. He didn't have to do that. He's God. But he chose to do it. The Bible says that he humbled himself, Philippians, and took upon him the form of a servant. He was made fat in, in fashion as a man. It means that he had limited use of these supernatural God abilities. That's why we read in the Gospels that when Jesus was growing up, it says that he grew in what? Wisdom and in stature. Well, we can understand the stature part. He's a human being, right? He's a little baby. He's not going to remain a baby. though. He's going to grow up. But what about the wisdom part? How can God grow in wisdom? And then it says he grew in favor with God and man. You're telling me God grew in favor with God? Because in his incarnation, he had limited his knowledge to what the Father revealed to him. It was self-imposed. He chose to humble himself and took on the form of a servant. And so when you look at him here, back in, in Matthew, in a sense, he's still growing in wisdom. He's still in his human body. He's still functioning as a human being, even though he's fully God. He's still under serving the Father. And the Father is revealing to him what he wants him to know. That's why in the garden he can pray things like, you know, Lord, if there's any way around this, if you can take this cup for me, that'd be great. But what? Not my will, right? But yours be done. He was here at the express pleasure of his father. Now, I believe that after he was executed, he died, remained in the grave for three days, was, was raised from the dead. I believe at that point in time when he had his glorified body, I think that basically he knew everything. <laughs> he knew everything. And the, way, the reason I say that is because in Matthew 28, 18, he said to his disciples, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. It'd be a little hard to have all authority if, his limited, if he had limited authority. And what he's saying is nothing's missing. Even over in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he says, but unto you it is not given to know the times and the seasons which my Father has put in his own power. Notice, he doesn't say, we don't know the times of the season. He says, no, you, disciples, you don't know. I'm glorified now. I know, but I'm not going to tell you because that's not within the will of my Father. So it may be well that after the resurrection, his knowledge was complete. It was unrestricted. Amazing when you stop and think about that. Notice the sermon title, No Man Knows the Hour. But there is one that knows, and it tells us there in verse 36. But the Father only. The Father only. My Father only. 
He always called God his father. He always used that term, always. Except for one case. When he was hanging on the cross. Remember, he cried out what? Not my father, my father, no. He cried out what? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because he was dying on the cross. And only something the mind of God can understand somehow, as he bore the weight of our sin on the cross, he had to undergo a, some form of, of separation. Which is just mind-boggling. So he didn't refer to him as his father. He referred to him as, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But every other time he spoke to God, he spoke to him as his father. And here it's emphasized only, only he knows. That's it. There's nobody else. I don't care how gifted you are in prophetic events and stuff. You cannot tell me the day and the hour when Christ will return. You just can't. That's a biblical principle. So whenever anybody writes a book or comes up with an idea or, oh, it's going to happen on you know May, whatever, just write down in your calendar, it's not happening that day or hour. <laughs> because the Lord wants every generation to live with an expectant heart. They want, he wants every generation to live prepared for His coming. And that's the whole point of this whole passage. We don't know what generation is coming upon, but when it comes, it's going to come with a vengeance. All these things are going to begin to happen, and it's going to happen rapidly. That's why they're referred to as birth pains. They build to the actual event. And Christians have ever since the New Testament have looked forward to the coming of Christ. The second coming, 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, a first-generation church in Corinth, and they're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking that he's going to return any time. Hebrews chapter 10 says that we should not neglect the meeting of our, ourselves together as Christians, but we should do it even more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of his coming. They were expectant of his return. James chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, what? Draws near. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. 1 John 2, 18, it is the last days. Revelation 22, 20, behold, I am coming quickly. Even so come, Lord Jesus, says John. See, the writers of the New Testament time were looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ with anticipation in their hearts, with expectancy in their hearts. They didn't understand that thousands of years was going to go by. And every generation should live that way with expectant hearts. We should be prepared for His coming. Because only God knows when it will be. Only God knows that day, that hour, when it will be. Well, you say, well... What's taking him so long? <laughs> What's he waiting around for? Why don't he just get the thing over with? Good question. If you look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 15, it tells us, 
says, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. Who is that? Jesus Christ. It's a picture indicated to us here in, in verse 14 of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in heaven. And the angel comes and cries out. He says, thrust in the sickle and reap for the time is come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Imagery here is very important that you understand this. When you plant something, you take care of that plant if you have a garden, and then eventually the garden grows and it bears you fruit, and what do you do? You harvest it. Why? Because it's ripe. Well, the Lord here is saying that He's waiting. He's waiting for, basically, sin to run its course on this earth. The church is taken out of here, and sin is just rampant. It's just running, overflowing. And he says, you know what? It has to run its course. The sin has to ripen. Secondly, in in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, that's the first reason that he's not coming back, that he's waiting, I should say. The second reason, he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, this unrevealed truth, lest you be wise in your own conceit, but blindness... That blindness is part, in part has happened to Israel until, look at what it says, the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. It talks about the Gentiles coming into the family of God through Christ. And so the second reason there is that the Lord is gathering all those who are going to trust in Him for salvation. So He's waiting for sin to run its course, and he's also waiting for salvation of everyone who's been elected before God to be completed. That's what he tells us. He's gathering together all those who are going to make up his eternal heaven. So all Israel will be saved. So there has to be a future the salvation of Israel. Jew and Gentile together through all eternity will praise the Lord. So it's for sin and it's also for salvation. That's why he's waiting. Now look at Second Peter chapter 3. This is an interesting passage that sheds a little more light on this for us. All the way in the back of your Bible there. Second Peter Chapter 3. When's it going to end? It'll end when God says it will end. But you have to remember this one point. In verse 8 of Second Peter 3, It says, do not overlook this one fact concerning the coming of Christ, concerning the day of the Lord. That with the Lord, one day is as what? A thousand years, it says. And a thousand years is is, is one day. What's he saying here? In other words, God doesn't have a watch. (laughs) God doesn't keep track of time. God transcends time. God overreaches time. And what that 
seems to us a thousand years. A thousand years, that's a long time. With God, it's nothing. It's like one day on his stopwatch. And so the Lord, it goes on there, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that what? Any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See? And then he goes on and he says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and will be dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will all be exposed. Verse 13, it says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Understand this. At the end of this seven-year period of tribulation, the last three and a half years being very intense, the earth undergoes extreme just chaos. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, some believe that's why that 75 days is in there. I'm sure he could just snap his, his uh, fingers and just everything would be back to normal. Somehow it takes that period of time to set up the kingdom and get everything in order. There's a judging of the nations and all that stuff that goes on during that time period. But when the millennium kingdom starts, everything is in order. So somehow Jesus Christ supernaturally restores the earth at that point. And then for a thousand years, the church and Jesus Christ rule and reign here on earth. And at the end of that thousand years, it says that everything is destroyed and there's a new heaven and a new earth to go on throughout all of eternity. But the reason he's waiting is so sin can run its course and so that all those who need to be saved and who will be saved are saved. Now, since we're here, look at verse 3 of the same, same chapter, Second Peter chapter uh, 3. Look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, there's going to be people actually during this tribulation period, beloved, where all this chaos is just ruling the earth. The church isn't even here. There's going to be people that are so hardened in their unbelief they're going to say, oh, this is, this, you know, the Lord's coming back. Yeah, right. And all the wheels are going to fall off the cart of earth. And rather than turn to God and repent, what are they going to do? They're going to probably, you know, reason within themselves, look to science, look to whatever, look for a reason where all these millions of people have gone. They're already doing that, some people. There's theories. I think the extraterrestrial being is a rather interesting one. The world is so lost in its sin, the church is literally gone one day. And what's the answer going to be? Oh, you know what? Extraterrestrials came and took these wacky Christians off our hands. Now we can have fun. You don't think the world's primed for that? They spend millions and millions and billions of dollars on looking for E.T. somewhere. 
ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I'm all for exploring space and things because we learn things scientifically from that. My Bible says that he created the earth. So you have all this stuff going on and these people are just scoffing at it, scoffing at it. And look at verse 5. This is so interesting because it ties right back to our passage in Matthew 24. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the, the water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's that talking about? It's talking about the flood. It's talking about a worldwide flood. See, these people are saying, oh, you know, everything's just going to go on as normal, just like it's always been. We've always been here, you know, that's just what's going to happen. Well, no, it hasn't always been here. And it, it was created out of nothing by God. And then God had to judge the world at one point with a worldwide flood. And you can go talk to any archaeologist, any kind of scientist, And they'll tell you, yeah, there's evidence on the earth, purely secular, of some kind of big flood. That's just known. We can't go down that path because we don't have time, but there's tons of evidence to support this. Tons. And not even from a Christian perspective, from a purely scientific perspective. Not only supports the, the, the worldwide flood, but it also supports a young earth. I would say a conservative estimate for the earth is ten to 20,000 years old at the tops. How could you say that? Scientists say millions and millions. Of, no, I don't care what scientists say. They're wrong. They don't have the evidence either. Stop and think about it. If evolution were true and there was millions and billions and billions of years for this to take place, don't you think that there would be some transitional form in the, in the fossil record somewhere, something, you know, that had a half frog, half human, or half monkey, whatever. Some, somewhere you'd find a fossil that had something like that. Frog with the head of a guy or something, you know. You'd find that somewhere. Nothing. There's nothing like that. Out of all the fossils they dig up, there's nothing like that. Why? Because it didn't happen that way. The Bible is very clear how it happened. We were created in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. If you want to believe you came out from a slime bucket in a swamp somewhere and crawled up out of there, go ahead. It's a lie from the pit of hell. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says. And by believing that, you're believing nonsense. And just because some authorities or, you know, scholars say, who are scholars? Who are scientists? A lot of scientists who are honest with science, who honestly look at the evidence, come back to some form of a creationist point of view. They really do. But we're so dumbed down because we go in the Smithsonian Institute and we look at the little monkey men lined up there. They don't tell you that most of those bones that you're looking at there aren't even, they weren't even real. They're all manufactured around. Matter of fact, one of them was manufactured around a pig's tooth until it was actually found out. But they still use it today, even today. They're so blinded in their unbelief. It's going to be the same way in the end times. You think people would put things together and say, man, look at all the stuff that's happening. You know, the Bible says something. No, they're not going to believe. They're not going to believe. 
And so he's going to allow this time period to continue for sin to take its course and for the salvation of some who will be saved. And we see here, even in Peter here, this cycle of the earth. God created the earth in an unfallen state. The world fell into sin. And then at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation, when sin reaches its peak, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. He restores what is left of that physical earth. Somehow, supernaturally, he restores it. We live here for a thousand years. And then ultimately, it's recreated destroyed and recreated as a new heaven and new earth at the end of that period of time and we go to be there into all eternity. Now, go back to verse 36. No one really knows the exact day or hour. We know the generation because they'll see all these things happening, but we don't know the exact hour. So he gives here in the remaining verses three attitudes that we should have concerning the coming of our Lord. And the first one there is very clear in verses 37 to 42. He says, be alert, be alert. He says, for as, he gives this illustration, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says that two times, down in verse uh, 39 as well. And then he goes on in verse 48, for as in those days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, first of all, for as were the days of Noah. Well, what's he saying here? He's making a tie between the days of Noah. Remember Noah? He was the guy that was the God-fearing preacher, and God called on him to build a giant boat, a box, literally the Scriptures call it, a big box bigger than the Queen Mary. Took him 120 years to do it. And people were mocking him as he's building it. Because he's saying, hey, God's going to somehow bring a deluge on the earth. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And he told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. Well, they mocked him, just like they it says in, in 2 Peter, it's going to happen in the end times. And you think that back then, in the days of Noah, he's building this big boat. You think that sooner or later, after maybe 50 or 60 years, thinking, maybe there's something to this guy. I mean, who sticks with something that long, first of all? And he's actually completing the task. And then they start to see supernaturally at the end, after everything's in place, the animals start to go in the boat. All his family gets in the boat. At some point, you think somebody would scratch their head and go, "Uh, you know, maybe this God is real and maybe we should ask to go on the boat too. But they don't. Why? Because they're too busy doing what they do. It says in verse 38, they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. You know, a lot of people look at those as sinful activities. They're not sinful activities. How many of you don't eat and drink? And maybe some of you are single, but those of you who are married, I mean, they're, they're not, he's not saying these are bad things. What he's saying is, you know what? It's just business as usual. Yeah, there's wacky guys out there in the desert building this giant boat. MacArthur said this in, in his message. He said that, he goes, on probably the, you know, after the boat was all sealed up and one of the, the, the first raindrops fell and hit somebody's nose, rather than actually turn and repent and believe, they probably said, hey, did a dinosaur sneeze or something? Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how much unbelief these people have. They just don't care. 
They're not going to look to the truth of the word of God. I mean, that's hard to believe. As the ark's floating away and these people are drowning, you know, by the time they got around to beating on the door, it was too late. It was just too late. I mean, stop and think about it. We live in such a selfish, self-centered, pious, hypocritical, materialistic world. It's devoid of anything spiritual for the most part. Everything's, you know, illegal. I went to a prayer breakfast last Friday morning with KFAX, and one of the speakers was Condoleezza Rice. And she spoke on her faith, and she spoke how just as a young girl, she came to faith in Christ, and then she kind of still had that faith, but didn't really engage it for several years. She was one of the youngest provosts at Stanford University. Brilliant lady. Humble lady. I was, I was really taken back by her testimony. And she, she told about a time when they were in Air Force One, her and some advisors, she listed off a bunch of people who were actually believers in that cabinet of George Bush. And they were going through a trying time. It had something to do with after 9-11. And they had to make a critical decision And she said, you know, we're all gathered there. And the president was in his part of the plane in his office. And she finally said, you know, maybe we should go in and pray with the president. And they all agreed. And on Air Force One, she said, we walked in, knocked on the door, and we had a word of prayer with the president that God would grant him the wisdom he needs to make the right decisions. She said, now today that would probably be considered illegal. (laughs) That's true. See, what's going to happen is You know what? The days of Noah, people were hard-hearted. That's going to happen all over again. People are just going to continue on in their life. It says in verse 39 that they were unaware. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware. You think, how could you be unaware of that? That's hard to even comprehend. Well, that's exactly what happened. And that's what's going to happen in the end times. And it's one thing to sit here and say, well, I don't know if that's really going to happen. Beloved, this is not a fairy tale. Remember, I'm telling you things that actually happened. Okay? When Jesus prophesied no stone would be left upon another, that happened. Take the Bible out of the picture. You can go to to secular history and say, 70 AD? Yeah, they, they flattened the place. That literally happened. And yet Christ prophesied that. You look at the incarnation of Christ and all the prophecies that were foretold about this individual hundreds of years before he was ever even on the scene. And there's not one that wasn't fulfilled. Not one. Not one. Hundreds of prophecies and they're all fulfilled exactly the way they should be. You know, at some point, you think people would scratch their head and go, well, maybe there's something to this guy. Maybe when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me, maybe it's time that at least I start to investigate this. At the very minimal. To see whether it's legit or not. Verse 39 says, they were unaware. Unaware. Unfortunate thing is, there's people every day in our own 
society that we pass that are purely unaware. They've heard the gospel. They may even have a Bible, but they're unaware. They're unaware of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would return at any moment. Any moment. Gives an illustration in verse 40. Look at this. He says, then two men will be in the field. Remember, this is not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Talks about men. He talks about woman in verse 41. Two women will be grinding at the mill. They, that's each their respective roles. The men were in the field. The women ground the, the grain at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And you say, well, what's that all about? Where will they be taken? This isn't talking about the rapture. Go back to verse 39. It says, They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of, what? The Son of Man. It's based on the picture of the flood sweeping men away into death. Two are going to be in the field when that final devastating fire of judgment comes when he returns. It says one will be taken in judgment. That's where he'll be taken. And one will be left. Be left for what? They'll be left because they're believers, they're righteous under the blood of Christ. They'll be left to live on in the millennium. There'll be actually people on earth during the millennium that actually did make it through the tribulation time. God divinely protects them. And they will continue to live on in this thousand-year period of time. Same thing with the women. One will be taken, one will be left. One will be swept away into judgment, one will be preserved. I mean, this is literally going to happen. But know this. He says in verse 42, he says, Therefore, this is very important, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. Be alert is what he's saying. Stay on top of your game. And this speaks to Christians as well as those who have yet to believe. In other words, if you haven't come to Christ yet, I, I, I don't know what to say other than I don't know, what's, I don't know what is is." more that needs to be said. I really don't. But I do know this, is that God has to work in your heart. God has to give you the ability to believe. God has to give you that repentance. It says that that repentance is granted to us. But that does not negate our desire to come. And I want to ask you this morning, if you have even an inkling of a question in your mind, is this stuff real or is this just some kind of wacky stuff this guy's talking about? I don't like, you know, I'm not one to sit down and read a comic book. I don't like all the, you know, um, even the Star Wars stuff is a stretch for me. I just can't get into that stuff. You know, give me a, a movie about a real guy in a real war and I'll watch it. You know, these space aliens, I, I just can't go there. Just don't even engage at all. I'm a very concrete kind of thinking person. Not a lot of imagination over here, okay? Okay. 
So when it comes to this stuff, you, you, you either got to believe that I've totally lost my mind and, I, and I'm just, you know, living in some weird land somewhere, or this is really true. It's true because God says it's true. Whether I believe it or not, I do believe it. But it, it's true because God says it's true. So the message is, is merely to stay awake. Because you don't know what day the Lord is coming. None of us do. And we'll finish this text next week, but this morning I just want to say to you, you know, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you understand that it's a simple act of faith. It's a simple act of reaching out to God explaining, crying out to him, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Inviting him to be part of your life. Repenting of your sin. Turning over, yeah, control to him. I mean, he created you for goodness sakes. You don't think he knows you? He knows you better than you know yourself. The one who lived and died on the cross rose again for you. The Bible says that we're called to confess our sin. Say the same thing about our sin that God says, that it's wrong, that we've dishonored his name. Confess it. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior. I don't know what you're waiting for. And for us Christians here, I mean, it's a wake-up call. Do you understand that everything around us is just going to burn up one day? It's going to be gone. It's just going to be gone. The only thing that we're going to have is what we've invested in eternity. That's what's going to survive. On this earth, it's the word of God and the souls of men and women. That's it. That's all that's going to make it through. And we need to look deep into our own heart and ask, are we making the right kind of eternal investments with our possessions, with our resources, with our abilities, with our time, with our talent, with our treasure, with everything? Are we using them for the glory of God? Are we just interested in packing the coffers full of stuff? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would just work in the hearts of everyone who is here. Lord, I know that sometimes some of these things sound so out of this world that it may seem like you're reading a comic book. But Lord, we're reading your word and your word is true. Because if it's not, then there's, there's no reason for us even to be here because that would mean that you're a guy who lies, a God who lies, and a God who lies is not a God at all. And Father, we, we trust in your word. We trust in its truth. We know that it's true. And we pray this morning that you would make that truth known as only you can. Lord, the Bible says that we, we don't even have the ability to believe that you grant that to us. Lord, it is by your grace that we're saved. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But somehow, Father, you woo us and you work through our will and our desire. And I pray that you would do that this morning. That you would cause those to repent and turn to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.